Father, we come to you this morning and we submit our lives to you in the wonderful name of Jesus. We are privileged to gather as your church today and to study your word that always produces fruit and brings transformation and restoration into our lives. Lord, we ask today that you would strengthen the focus of our minds and open the eyes of our hearts so that your word would prosper in us and accomplish all that it has been sent forth to do. Father, as we continue on this topic of revival today, something our nation needs, something the church needs, something we need. Lord, help us to understand what it is and how to experience it for ourselves. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Well, church, it's really good to be with you this morning. And today we're going to carry on with part two of our series on the topic of revival. And we will conclude in part today. I say in part because this is not a one-time event. Revival is not a one-time event only when we decide to speak about it. It is continually restoring our Christian life and our relationship with God to the point where we are effective for the sake of the gospel. So this is something that we constantly need to focus on. And church, if we do this, we open up ourselves to be used powerfully by the Holy Spirit for the sake of King and Kingdom, and by the grace and the sovereign will of God, a spiritual awakening will break out as we've heard about and read about in generations gone by. And it is my prayer that the Lord would do it again, and that it would begin in me, and it would begin in you. Church revival starts with us. And as we identified last week from our key passage of Scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if we are willing to humble ourselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from our wicked ways, we can experience revival. Last week we identified and we looked at the importance of firstly being humble enough to evaluate ourselves habitually on a continual basis knowing that we still have a long way to go. Secondly, to pray with passion and with earnestness and complete dependence upon God. And thirdly, to repent from all known sin. You would recall that I also made reference to evangelist R.A. Torrey that had a theory about revival. And he said, if you want to see revival, number one, you need to get thoroughly right with God. Number two, get together with other Christians and pray for revival until God comes down. And number three, make yourself available to God, especially in the winning of souls to Christ. We also looked at the word revival and that it simply means to come alive again. Right? It's to revive someone who was once more alive than they are right now. It's a returning to passion. It's to wake up from your slumber. It was C.S. Lewis who said, and I quote, A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense. He is all right, really. When you're awake, not when you're sleeping or when you're sleeping. So in other words, church, if you think you're a great person with no problems, you've got no sin in your life, 
then you're really more asleep than you realize. And you know, that's the way that we are sometimes. We don't want to admit that we are asleep. We don't think we're asleep, but the person that is asleep doesn't necessarily know that they're sleeping. It's when you're awake that you can say, oh wow, I was asleep. That's what revival is. It's coming back and waking up to the kind of faith that God wants us to have. And listen, church, I'm sure you will agree with me this morning, but we need the type of awakening faith that the early church had. The type of faith that turned the world upside down. The type of faith that changed the world. And you see, you can't be bored with your Christian experience to the point where you are falling asleep spiritually. Because nothing about authentic Christianity is boring. I mean, consider this for a moment. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. But there was always action. It never got boring. Preacher and evangelist G. Campbell Morgan once said that organized Christianity that fails to make a disturbance is dead. That's a powerful statement. And look, church, that doesn't mean that you need to be obnoxious or create a scene. Making a disturbance means getting some response or reaction to your faith. And I feel the time has come for the church to start making a disturbance again. It's time for us to wake up from our slumber. And there is certainly nothing to be bored about when it comes to our Christian journey. In the rest of our time together today, I want us to look at an example from Scripture of a personal revival that took place in a man that led to one of the largest revivals in all of history. It's the story of the prophet Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Reluctant because he didn't want to go to preach to the city of Nineveh, but because he finally went with a little extra persuasion, it resulted in the largest spiritual awakening in all of the Bible. So maybe a good place to start is to ask the question, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Why didn't he want to go? Well, Jonah was a very patriotic Israelite, and the enemies of Israel were the Assyrians, and the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And so when God said to Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites, he thought it through, and he probably thought to himself, Lord, I know your nature. I know how gracious and how loving you are, and how willing you are to forgive. And if I, my fear is if I go and preach to these creepy, evil people, you will forgive them and not judge them. But if I don't preach, if I don't go, then you will judge them. And that will be one less enemy that we have to deal with. So Jonah didn't want to go. It was very clear. And it's true that the Ninevites were creepy and cruel people. They were known for their savagery. In fact, when the Ninevites would conquer a nation, they would often torch the people before they executed them. They were known to burn children alive and torture others, tearing the skin from their bodies and leaving them to die in the scorching sun. And rather than hide their wickedness, they celebrated it and proclaimed it. They even built monuments to show their own cruelty. 
Nineveh, by the way, was a very large city for ancient times and had about one million inhabitants. And those Ninevites lived large. They enjoyed the best chariots, the finest food, and the most exotic entertainment you can imagine. And they had an extensive business and commercial system like no other in all the world. They had been ruling for hundreds of years and they were the reigning superpower on the planet at the time. But unbeknownst to them, their days were numbered. Because if they carried on the way they were carrying on, it would not be all that long until Babylon would come and overtake them and destroy them. So God was giving to Nineveh one last chance to wake up and turn back to him. And so he calls on Jonah to go. Let's have a look at what it says in Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. You know how the story goes, right? Jonah gets onto a boat to and goes in the opposite direction to where God called him to go, God sends a mighty storm. It's about to break the ship apart. And the sailors on the boat begin to cry out to their false gods for hope or for help. Nothing calms the storm. And so they decide to call on Jonah, who had fallen into a deep sleep down below. And they asked him, do you know what's going on? And he very plainly said to them, I'm the reason for the storm. In fact, he told them that he was running away from the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, and that absolutely terrified them. So they said to Jonah, listen, what do we have to do? How do we stop your God from killing us all? And Jonah simply says, throw me overboard. If you want to be saved, throw me overboard. At first, they don't want to because they are now fearing the wrath of of the same God who was bringing the storm, but eventually the storm becomes so severe that they throw Jonah overboard and immediately the seas become calm. Verse 17 says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By the way, church, just for clarity's sake, the Bible never says that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. I don't know why we always say that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's like when we say that Adam and Eve ate the apple. The Bible never says they ate an apple. They ate forbidden fruit, right? The Bible never says that a whale swallowed Jonah. Now, maybe a whale did. But the Bible specifically says that God prepared a great fish. Maybe it was a custom-designed fish just for Jonah. But you know, it really doesn't matter what type of fish it was. Because people fixate on the story of Jonah and the whale, and they miss the biggest story of the greatest revival in all of history, or in ancient history at least. So church, Jonah, we found out, was a very stubborn individual. 
he not only flees from the Lord, but he spent three days and three nights inside that stomach without any response or turning from his rebellious ways. Three days. Wrapped up in seaweed. Probably as hot and humid as you can imagine. The smell of dead fish, right? But finally he comes to his senses and Jonah had a personal revival in the belly of the fish. And we read about that in Jonah chapter 2 from verse 1. This is what it says. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. In my great trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the death I called and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths. I sank down into the floods of waters and was covered by your wild and stormy waves. Drop down to verse 7. When I had lost all hope, I turned my thoughts once more to the Lord. And my earnest prayer went to you in your holy temple. I will never worship anyone but you. For how can I thank you enough for all that you have done? I will surely fulfill my promises for my deliverance comes from the Lord alone. Church, God disciplined Jonah in the belly of the fish. He repented. Jonah turned once again to the Lord and God revived him. And what we see now is a man that is ready to be used by the Lord. He was willing to obey God again. And from this point of obedience comes fruit that produces characteristics of revival, which we'll see now in chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Church, isn't it amazing that we serve the God of a second chance? Amen? Verse 2 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah was commanded to proclaim and to preach the message that God gave him. It was God's message. Verse 3 and 4 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now look, you have to imagine that even Jonah, that he acted in obedience, he probably was still a little afraid to preach to these violent Ninevites, especially a message of judgment. Because preaching a message like this could have led Jonah to an early grave. It could have led Jonah to be tortured and abused by these people. And yet, what did Jonah do? He obeyed the Lord anyway. And church, this leads to characteristic number one of revival. If you take your notes, characteristic number one of revival is this. The messenger must give God's word regardless of the outcome. Let me say that again. The messenger must give God's word regardless of the outcome. Jonah had no idea what was going to happen to him when he preached to the Ninevites. But obeying God's word took precedence over Jonah's fears, over what Jonah wanted to do, and even what he felt. And church, from a point of application, it's no different for us either. 
Because we're called to preach, we're called to counsel, and we're called to talk about God's word with others, regardless of whether we feel like it or not. And yet I think many of us that are believers, we don't often do that anyway. And the question is, why don't we? Why do we often hesitate or decide not to share God's word with others? Or maybe a better question is this. What holds us back from giving others God's word? You know, we might say, well, I don't want others to think I'm judgmental. Or I don't want to look like an extremist. I don't want to look like one of those Bible-bashing Christians, right? I don't want my friends or my family members to reject me. And church, when we say things like this, we need to ask the question, who are we really focused on? Are we focused on the person who desperately needs guidance from God's word? Or are we more focused on what people will think of us? In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, the apostle Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is saying, church, that his ultimate motivation is God's approval, not man's. And Paul's not thinking, you know, when he shares God's word, you know, I hope they still like me after I say this. This is not what he's thinking, right? His motivation is to please the Lord regardless of the outcome. In other words, church, as believers, we are called to be God-pleasers over people-pleasers. And this leads to the second characteristic of revival. The messenger is driven to please God instead of pleasing people. This is so important. That means that we are willing to walk through our fear of what someone might think of us. We're willing to say what's unpopular. We're willing to say what is countercultural. We're willing to stand for truth, even if that means making a disturbance. Because we are passionate about pleasing the Lord alone. Now, like I said earlier, that doesn't mean that you need to be obnoxious or, or make a scene. But it does mean that you need to get some response or reaction to your faith. And you could say it like this. A revived Christian is willing to make a disturbance only if it will bring glory to God and draw people unto Him. Amen? So church, we must walk through our fears and share God's word courageously like Jonah. And I want you to consider something this morning. Are you a fearless messenger for Christ? Are you sharing God's word with others? Is there a family member or a friend or a, a work colleague that you need to share the gospel with? I mean, I need to remind you this morning that the gospel is good news. It's the best news. It's life-saving news. And think of it this way, church. If I was about to jump off a cliff, you would, of course, warn me that if I do that, I more than likely will die. I hope you would, right? You wouldn't say, you know what, I don't want to offend you. Or I, I don't want to make a scene. No, you would say, Ryan, stop. If you go over the cliff, it's going to kill you. 
And church, this is where many people are at spiritually in society today. They are proverbially going over the spiritual cliff. And it's God's word, it's the gospel that's going to save them. And that means that we are the messengers of today like Jonah was the messenger of yesterday. And I understand this can seem a bit daunting. It can make us feel a bit insecure because most of us don't think of ourselves as modern day prophets or modern day messengers of God. But I ask you, if not us the church, then who will share Christ with others? Who will be the messengers of God if the church won't? Romans chapter 10 verses 14 to 15 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Church, we have this beautiful message to share with others. And it always will bring a response. Coming back to our story, Jonah is preaching this tough message. It was a message of impending destruction and doom on Nineveh. And now we get to hear the response of the Ninevites. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God. They believed God. Remember in verse 2, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim to it the message I give you. Very importantly, Jonah brought only God's word to the people. Not his word. God's word and they believed it. And this leads to characteristic number three, a revival. The hearers take God's word and God's warning seriously. Let's see how seriously they took this warning from verse five. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. You're thinking, what did the animals have to do with it, right? Verse 8 says, But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Church, we've all heard the saying that actions speak louder than words. But for these Ninevites, this was an understatement. They believed God's message and immediately they changed the way that they lived. I mean, who would have dreamed? Especially back then, who would have dreamed that these wicked, brutal, violent worshippers of false gods would turn to God? But they did. And they did whatever was necessary to show that they were sorry for their rebellion against God. Even the king himself took off his royal robes and covered himself in sackcloth and sat in the dust with everyone else. It was a miraculous turnaround. 
These people went from sin, 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 to worshiping God, depending upon God, glorifying God, and living for God. And let me ask you a question this morning. What's the theological term for this type of behavior from the Ninevites? What does it mean when someone changes the way they act and they think? What's the word for that? Repentance. The answer is repentance. And this leads us to the fourth and final characteristic of revival. Godly sorrow leads to radical transformation. Godly sorrow leads to radical transformation. These people were heartbroken over their rebellion against God, so they turned to God while turning away from their sin. The perfect verse to describe the transformation of these Ninevites is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death or brings death. We see that Nineveh had godly sorrow because it brought repentance, which then led to salvation. And church, when we're looking at this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the question is, what is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? What does it actually mean? Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Church, godly sorrow is, is being heartbroken over your sin against God. It's a deep conviction and a deep sorrow that is focused on how you have rebelled against the Lord. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, is being heartbroken over the consequences of your sin. It's being upset because of what your sin has caused you to lose. Or it's being upset because you've been caught out. So worldly sorrow is mourning over yourself instead of mourning over your sin and your rebellion against God. It was J.R. Packer that said, and I quote, Repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. When we have godly sorrow, it leads to repentance. And repentance always leads not only to thinking differently, but living differently. End quote. At church, when I was thinking about this, why is it that we often have a negative view of repentance? Some of us think of repentance as the, the vegetable part of our meals. It's like, you know, when you're young and you move your vegetables all around the plate, or you try to cover it with something in the hope that your parents will forget about it, right? <laughs> Did you do that? You still do. <laughs> Sometimes we view repentance in the same way. We try to avoid it by skirting around it in the hope that our Heavenly Father will forget about it. But church, in reality, repentance is a blessing. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift. And why do I say that? Because repentance revives our relationship with God and it sets us free from the bondage of sin. You know, as believers, we can hinder our relationship with God when we let sin enter our lives. We stop praying, we stop listening to God's word, and we stop fellowshipping with believers. We, stop, we start fellowshipping with the ways of the world. And our sin grows into this mountainous 
barrier that separates us from God and it ends up hindering our relationship with God. But as believers, we have this awesome privilege of turning to Christ in repentance and by the grace of God, that barrier between us and God immediately disappears. It crumbles. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Amen. So repentance leads the Lord to forgive us and refresh us. It revives our relationship with God. And church, just like vegetables are healthy for us, even if they're a bit hard to swallow sometimes. Repentance is a vital part to a healthy relationship with the Lord. And I would urge us all to make it a staple part of our diets because it is a key component to living a revived life. So in my closing words and and call to you this morning, let me conclude by saying, revival is nothing more or nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. And then it is long obedience in the same direction. Church, only God can send an awakening to South Africa or different parts of the world. But revival can happen right here, right now for you. You may say, listen, what do I need to do? Well, remember 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That can happen for you now. The people of Nineveh repented of their sin They called it for what it was. God sent his healing. And God can do the same for you. Church, we need to get back to the place where we always make sure that we are right with God. And I wonder this morning, has the Lord spoken to your heart? And I wonder if you feel as if you need a personal revival. Maybe you've come to the place in your Christian journey And you've fallen asleep spiritually. Maybe you're saying, listen, I don't care that much about lost people anymore. I don't have a passion for the word of God like I once had. I don't really care that much about prayer. But I want to be revived and I want to to get back to the place where God wants me to be so that he can use me. Or maybe the Lord has spoken to you. And there are some wicked things that you need to turn from. And if you would be honest enough to admit that you need to turn from your sin and you repent and you commit it to God, you will be revived and refreshed. Whatever it is this morning, if you want to do it, I'm going to give you an opportunity, but I'm not going to make it easy. I'm going to ask you to leave your comfort zone right now and kneel or kneel in front or next to your chair. And we're going to pray, and we're going to spend a bit of a time in repentance. If you can't kneel, you can stand. If you can't stand, raise your hands. And you may say, Pastor, but listen, why do we have to do things like this? Why do we have to kneel? Because God says we should come and humble ourselves. 
that I'm going to kneel with you this morning as Pastor Ronell leads us in the time of prayer.